Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. I'm going to try something different this week. I'm going to try and record the audio for this portion first and then play some music second so that I don't end up having to cut short because I'm running out of time. This is the 12th episode of this podcast. They are sequential, so uh, you may want to go back and listen to the beginning. But this is a fun one uh, because in this episode, Helen sneaks into her own parents' wedding. I'm thinking about my own parents' wedding right now. If I could have been there, what would it have been like? I only sort of know where it was. I know it was in, in California, in a city called San Carlos. But I don't know if I'd ever driven past the church. I know that my dad didn't wear his glasses, and I, I think he almost walked into a wall or something because he can't see without them. Anyway, uh, we're going to see Keith and Alice's wedding. We'll run into some relatives of theirs, some of whom have appeared in my book, The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum, and maybe some who haven't. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you want to subscribe and leave a review, that's great. If not, well, I hope you have as much fun as I do. Thanks. The news is next. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time left of all my gap, 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 gap. Reboot him! You're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the 5 squared of September 3202. Well, it just is. That's the plain truth of it. Outside, the high for today is also 5 squared. The low is 4 squared minus 2, with a high chance of cubic rain. Now here's the post-apocalyptic report. September marks time traveler premature death awareness month. The San Diego Council for Wellbeing is highlighting the often unspoken tragedy of going back in time and dying hundreds of years before you were born. Yes, you can still live just as many years as you would otherwise, but the paperwork is ridiculously confusing and can make purchasing life insurance difficult. Local actuary Leon Decker was quoted as saying, I don't care if you come back for one day, just come back. Time traveler Angel Duffy had brought a service animal into the airport, and although normally she would have a right to do that, the service animal in question was a dodo. Angel has pointed out that Mother of Time, Alice Anderson, traveled through the multiverse with her miniature Triceratops Grendel, but she has been given special dispensation by both the Time Traveler's Bureau and King George the Seventh. 
Today is the 40th anniversary of my creation. Suck it, Tyrell Corporate. I mean, today is my 40th birthday. Thanks to all of the fans who sent me birthday wishes. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. Lying to yourself. Alice was probably never going to love the biplane in the way that Keith did. Keith seemed born to it. The controls responded to his touch as if the stick was an extension of his right arm. Alice was not born to it. For her, the biplane would always be just a means to an end, although there were times when the flights were admittedly beautiful. Flying solo over the expanded Indian Ocean with the wind blowing against her face, it was hard not to admire the view. The clouds were puffy white dots on an azure sky in the sort of way that they always were in paintings and in pictures. There is nothing more beautiful than sitting in the cockpit of a plane watching the clouds drift below you. Nothing at all, in any time, in any century. Alice leveled off at a height of about 3,000 feet and pulled the time orb out of her pocket and held it in her right hand, her left clutching the ship's controls. The glass orb's hands were all moving toward the infinity symbol, but not quite on it. You can do this, she told herself, glancing down at the sphere. You've done this before. Swallowing hard, Alice shouted into the wind. Take me to Camelot. Take me to Camelot and to Keith so I can bring him home. The hands on the time orb spun around wildly and then stopped. Nothing happened. Twenty-five minutes later, Alice touched down on the runway of San Tiempo's tiny airport. She took off her leather flying cap and shook out her curls. Can I help you, my lady? A generic Fergus with a Scottish accent said, walking up to the plane as Alice climbed out of the cockpit. Why do they always have different accents if they've got the same bloody faces? Alice wondered angrily. She slid down the fuselage and planted her feet on the ground. Taking a deep breath, she looked at the Fergus and said, I'd like to see Phaedra. And then, trying to sound calm, she added, now. Alice generally did not use her status as the mother of time to curry favor with anyone on the island. It wasn't her style. Alice had no official position, and as head of the Time Traveler's Museum, Phaedra did. Still, she knew that Phaedra would see her and right away. In the time it took to commandeer a transport from one side of the island to the other, provided by a gracious 19th century gentleman who loaned out the back half of a tandem bicycle, Phaedra, daughter of Minos, had cleared out her schedule so that Alice could see her. As usual, Phaedra's office was cluttered and cramped. 
Still, she had done her best to clear off the space in the chair in front of her desk. In doing so, she had created two towers of paperwork that stretched up to the ceiling like miniature skyscrapers, which Alice did her best to ignore. It's lovely to see you, my dear, Phaedra said. It wasn't, and Alice knew it. Thank you, Alice said coldly. What can I do for you today, love? Phaedra asked. Fancy a tour of the wing of scientifically unlikely specimens? The two-headed platypus is incredible. Another time, Alice dismissed. I just took a trip, or rather tried to. I wanted to talk to you about it. Phaedra swallowed in a manner that suggested she had been dreading this conversation for a long time. Where did you want to go? Camelot, Alice clarified, except that my time orb wouldn't take me there. Phaedra looked down at her sandaled feet. No, she admitted. I would think not. Alice pushed her chair back and crossed her legs slightly. She opened her purse and took out a small notebook. Can you explain why? Well, it's magic, isn't it? Phaedra insisted. Camelot is magic. The time orb can only take you to places that are real, can't it? Places that are real, Alice repeated. That's right, Phaedra said. Magic isn't real, so Camelot can't be. Not the Camelot that Keith Quick is in, anyway. Alice shrugged. All right, let me ask you something, daughter of Minos. What about the Minotaur? How do you explain that? Phaedra leaned over her desk and rubbed her temples. You could tell that she had been forced to tell this story a lot. People remember that my father was a king, and they usually forget that he was a terrible man. He was bloodthirsty and ruthless. After weaning a particularly one-sided battle, he built a maze in his back garden that he would throw prisoners into. Sometimes, when they got to the center of the maze, they would find a soldier who would run them through, and sometimes they would find my father's prize bull. As the bodies piled up, the story started to spread. So the story of the Minotaur is false, Alice asked. The story of the Minotaur isn't one I experienced, Phaedra admitted. It's magic, just like the world of King Arthur. Merlin, the Lady of the Lake, Morgan Le Fay, those are people who can break the laws of physics. Alice considered this. In my era, people are always asking if King Arthur is real. Any time his name comes up, that's the first thing that people ask. Every little town in Wales lures American tourists in with the promise that King Arthur slept there. Couldn't there be a real King Arthur out there somewhere? Someone who is as real as you and I? There could be, Phaedra acknowledged. Is that what you are looking for? Alice saw her point. No. No, I was just looking for Keith. It could have taken me to the Antarctic, and I wouldn't have cared. Phaedra nodded. Don't you see? Wherever Keith is, he is not in the realistic Camelot. 
he's in the magical place but and this is the important part the magical place is out there Keith and Excalibur proved that Keith put his initials on the hilt of the sword Alice finished for her yes I see your point of course I have no idea where that place is Phaedra added or how to get there both women sat alone in their thoughts for a moment it was Alice who broke the silence I went to the 20th century and asked T.H. White who he thought made Excalibur Alice said Phaedra raised an eyebrow what did he say she asked he said the sword was made by Merlin Alice answered with an exasperated sigh who else Phaedra nodded that seems logical Alice shook her head does anything make sense anymore Phaedra didn't answer this instead she stood up and gestured to Alice to follow her they walked out of the office and Phaedra led Alice down a hall they walked to the end of the hall and got into a large lift that struck Alice as surprisingly utilitarian for a building that housed Robin Hood's bow and arrow. They got into the lift and Phaedra pushed a button marked 3SB, whatever that was. It was the lowest button that she could press. The lift lurched and then started to sink slowly. How far they went down, Alice could not say, but it seemed like it was a long way. It felt like something more than ten stories and something less than four stops on the London tube. The air got thinner and then cooler, and then surprisingly it started to get warmer again. The lift came to a grinding halt, and the door opened slowly. They found themselves in a hallway that stretched out in three different directions. There were several doors off all the sides, as if... The museum had some large bureaucratic division which had gone previously unseen. As with the lift, it had an oddly utilitarian quality that Alice had never seen anywhere on San Tiempo. Alice was given the impression that she was seeing behind the curtain at a theater, so to speak. The only thing that gave any indication that there was anything unusual about the hallway that they were in was the ceiling. It was carved out of solid rock. Phaedra walked straight down the hallway, passing several doors until she came to what appeared to be the dominant piece of architecture in the area, a large metal gate. At the front of the gate was a guard who was dressed in army fatigues that looked borrowed from the American military. Phaedra nodded to the guard and then proceeded to walk through the gate. The guard eyed Alice with what was probably a certain amount of reverence. On the other side of the gate, the passageway was narrower and entirely made of stone. I'm surprised they don't have torches on the walls, Alice thought. The hallway ended in a small alcove in which there lay a small pool. The pool was extraordinarily beautiful, filled with a silvery substance that reflected like chrome, but with the consistency of treacle. It seemed to move in a way that suggested it was somewhere in between living and death. Alice recognized the substance in the pool as liquid time. She had seen it before, but never so much at once, undoubtedly because this was the source. Alice wanted to touch its surface, but did not dare. You know what this is, Phaedra stated flatly. 
You were the first person to harness it. It's liquid time, Alice said. The educator in her wanted to say more and explain what it was, but she knew that it would be impolite. Phaedra was a woman of the ancient world. Her people took pride in having discovered the Pythagorean theorem. Quantum logic would be a little bit beyond her. Since quantum logic bore such a small resemblance to actual logic, it was pretty much beyond everyone. Instead, Alice took a deep breath and knelt above the pool. It smelled like cinnamon and wood shavings. You know what this is. You understand it, Phaedra pointed out. I don't. To me, this is magic. You can go on about atoms and electrons and other things, but to me, this is nothing less than magic. It is magic, and I think that's a beautiful concept. It's complicated, I know, Alice agreed, but I can explain. I have no need to explain it away, Phaedra dismissed. Explaining it away would only diminish its beauty and power. Alice stood up and frowned. The pool was beautiful, but she had gotten sidetracked. I don't understand what this has to do with Keith and I, she said. Phaedra sighed. No, I expect that you don't. If it helps, I can tell you this. I think that if you want to find Keith quick, you are going to have to embrace a few things that you don't want to understand. Alice knew that there were plenty of things in life that she didn't understand and never would. She had watched a baseball game once when she was in America. However, she resented the implications of what Phaedra said and wanted to resist just slightly. Nothing is beyond the understanding of science, she insisted self-importantly. Nothing, Phaedra said, except for the human heart. Your heart is what's driving you now. Try to keep it in the driver's seat. Even in the most exciting lives, there are some moments that are quietly pedestrian. Keith Quick and Alice Anderson were cooking dinner in the small kitchen of the house on San Tiempo, while Spring sat on the couch reading a tale of two cities. Dinner had been proving to be something of a challenge. Alice, being from the 21st century, tended to like foods that were spicier and more exotic than anyone else. Keith, who had lived through the Great Depression, tended to enjoy comfort foods that were warm and less flavorful. Spring, who had grown up in another century where food was less plentiful, generally ate everything politely and was surprised to find that neither of her friends were interested in eating swan or raven. Tonight they were having steak with sautéed onions with a Caesar salad, which seemed to appeal to everyone. Grendel hopped up onto the couch and curled up into a ball. Spring scratched his forward horn gently. The first time I met you, you were older, she whispered, and then she turned and looked at the kitchen. Do we have any wine? she called out into the other room. There's some down in the cellar, Alice called back. I'll get it, Keith offered cheerfully and promptly ran downstairs. Spring had enough experience with Keith to know that it took him three times longer to find anything than any other human being alive. As such, she knew he would not be back for a few minutes. Spring put down her book, stood up, and went into the kitchen. Grendel followed her. The little dinosaur had discovered that the kitchen was the source of a wide variety of dinosaur treats, 
and he tried to express a deep longing for them with a forceful wag of his tail. It's been three months, Spring said, looking at Alice. I know, Alice replied. Have you given up looking for him? Spring asked. I have not, Alice said. But, Spring honestly didn't know what to say. He's here, she added in a harsh stage whisper. He is, Alice agreed. But, Spring stammered. Again, she looked like she didn't know what to say. He's going to end up falling through a hole in the sky. I know, I was there. Spring stole a sideways glance at the cellar door. Are you going to tell him? she asked. I suspect that it would not go over well, Alice admitted, and I've decided that I'm rather fond of him. Leaving him stranded wherever he ended up seems like a strange way to show it, Spring observed. For Alice it had been three months, two weeks, and four days since they had picked up Keith Quick in Los Angeles, and Alice had been trying to avoid talking about this for most of the time. Personal confrontation was not her strong suit. Although Spring meant well, this conversation had the potential to get ugly. There was an obvious reason for this. Alice wasn't sure if what she was doing was right. When I met Keith, he didn't tell me that he knew who I was. Alice was talking in a flat tone that she hoped would imply that she understood the gravity of the situation. Not only did he know me, Keith and I had been married for two years. I didn't understand this at the time. I do now. You may understand it, Spring said. I'm not sure that anyone else does. It's a complicated life that we lead, Alice clarified. Are there other sorts of lives that aren't? Spring asked. When I figured out the truth about Keith and me, it was the worst possible time. Alice explained. Now I need to make up for that by understanding the things about him that I didn't know back then. Is there a reason that we simply can't time travel back to Camelot and look for him there? Spring asked. I swear he is, isn't he? The time orb won't take us there, Alice admitted. The time orb will only take us places that follow the laws of physics. Wherever Camelot is, it's some place filled with magic and mysticism. The laws of quantum physics don't apply. How can you be sure? Spring asked. I checked, Alice admitted. Spring raised her eyebrows. What happened? I went up into the air and told the time orb I wanted to go to Camelot. The dials spun around and then nothing happened. Spring looked a little hurt. You were going to Camelot and you didn't tell me? Alice sighed. I didn't tell you because I was sure it wouldn't work, and I had a feeling I would be upset afterwards. Spring swallowed. I'm sorry, she mumbled apologetically. Alice gave her friend a hug. I'm sorry for what happened, and I do want to find him, but this isn't the time to go off looking for him. Is that right? Spring asked. What makes you so sure? Alice wished that her friend wasn't a fountain of questions. Because the time that Keith remembered, that time when we were happy, when we fell in love, when we got married and did all those things, that time is now. 
He needs this time, and I need it. There was a pause, and Spring smirked. Alice realized that she had been tricked. So, Spring's face brightened. Are you going to marry him? Alice thought yes, but answered, I don't know. It's only been three months. Spring heard the words, it's only three months, but what she understood was yes. Sorry I took so long, Keith said. I got lost. I found a closet full of leather miniskirts and go-go boots. That's not something I need to worry about, is it? I don't know, Alice admitted with a laugh. I expect we'll find out along the way. Knock, Grendel said, and Alice gave him a treat. Take my hand We'll walk into the night And we will find Words to soothe your soul A dream or two And peace of mind Alice had been on her mobile for the better part of an hour, arguing with a florist who was in a time zone that was roughly six hours and eleven millennia behind hers. The florist was very insistent that white roses were the definitive wedding flower and that absolutely nothing else would do. For reasons unknown, florists in every century have taken ruining someone else's wedding as raison d'etre, 
Alice had already told him to shoot off several times and had been tempted to tell him that she wanted Venus flytraps on the tables. Roses are fine, she said, taking a deep breath, but they need to be yellow, not white. Begging your pardon, miss, roses are beautiful, but yellow doesn't blend, it pops. We want everyone to be looking at you in your beautiful white dress. If you're standing next to yellow roses, that's the only thing they'll see. I have already told you I'm not wearing a white dress. I'm wearing a lovely shade of sea foam. Thank you very much. And it should not matter if I'm walking down the aisle in my knickers. I can have any colour flower that I please. The florist mentioned something about Marie Antoinette that Alice didn't catch. Alice thanked him for his time and hung up. Spring looked up from her book. I didn't sound like it went well. For some reason, in modern society, before getting married, every woman has to spend a day and a half running a hotel. This is presumably meant to prepare me for later in life. In my day, you usually wore your sister's best dress or your cousin's, and if you were lucky, everyone cleared out the back field for an hour after the ceremony so you could, well, you know, Spring giggled. In the past couple of years, they had become time travelers through and through. It had seeped into their DNA. Their lives were a mix of the past and the future, and they browsed through time like it was a bookshelf filled with old favorite novels, picking up one whenever the mood struck them and visiting their favorites whenever they chose. However, for their wedding, Alice and Keith Quick would be going traditional. They would be getting married in a field atop the South Downs. The bride would be wearing a light green sleeveless dress with an off-white bust, and the groom would be dressed in a white jacket with a bow tie. The wedding would take place in the summer of 1996, with friends and relatives coming in from several different continents and centuries. The ceremony would be performed by the Reverend Carl Lawn, the Presbyterian minister from Keith Quick's hometown. Reception would be held at South Downs Manor and would consist of a choice of steak or chicken cordon bleu with a vegetarian option. It was mostly a traditional affair, but some concessions would be made to their new lives. Guests would toast the happy couple with a Venusian sunrise, a delightful mix of quinoline, mango liqueur, and cranberry juice with a thin layer of with a thin layer of pomegranate seeds and a slice of lime, and the waiters would all be identical talking Fergus androids. The music would be a string quartet playing the Planets Symphony. Alice was still a physicist, after all. Has Keith told you where you're going for your honeymoon? Spring asked. No, Alice admitted. I am marrying a 20th century American. He's progressive, but he has his limits. He's determined to make it a surprise. Spring pursed her lips. Men changed so very little over the centuries. I got to plan all the details of the wedding. I am giving him this one thing, Alice said. He also gets to pick out his socks. Spring nodded. Where is he now? Picking up someone. Some of the guests are flying here for a few days before the wedding. Others are going straight to the site, but a few will be flying in early from other times. 
and we are staggering their arrivals to avoid suspicion. Not everyone has access to a time orb, so Keith is doing a lot of flying this week. Aha! Uh -huh. Spring nodded and glanced sideways at the door. Alice could tell that she had something she wanted to talk about, something that she did not want Keith to hear. How long until he gets back? Long enough for you to tell me about whatever it is you have on your mind, Alice said. When you first met Keith, he told you that you were married, Spring surmised. Alice had a feeling that she might know where the conversation was heading. Yes, he did, she said. And he told you how long you'd been married for, Spring asked. He did, Alice agreed. That might have been a social faux pas. How long was it? Spring asked. Alice didn't answer. How long? Spring asked again. Two years, Alice admitted. And you haven't seen him since, Spring said. I know from the inscription on the sword that Keith survived the fall. I know that he is somewhere in the Dark Ages and I know that he misses me. I have no idea where he is or how to get there. There was an unpleasant silence. Life is full of a lot more uncomfortable silences than people usually care to admit, especially if you're English. This isn't easy for me to talk about, Alice admitted. In the past few years I have tried to think of this time as a gift. If Keith had cancer, I wouldn't think anything of marrying him. I would simply resign myself to enjoy the time that we have. Even if I knew we were going to get a divorce, I wouldn't be any less happy than I am today. Time ends all things, one way or another. So, you expect that history will repeat itself? Spring surmised. You think this version of Keith Quick will end up meeting a younger version of you and end up falling out of time again? I do, Alice admitted. Spring shook her head. You're a scientist. You always talk about your belief in science and in understanding the world about you. Now you're talking about knowing what things are going to happen in the future and not being able to stop it. That sounds like prophecy. That sounds like magic. I know, Alice shouted angrily. I know this isn't logical. I know that I'm losing him. And I know there isn't anything I can do about it. And I don't know why. I'm an educated woman. I studied science for years. And nothing I've ever learned has prepared me for this. Alice flopped down on the white couch. Spring grabbed her friend's hand and squeezed it firmly. You're going to find him, Spring said. Even if it means losing what you have. I know, Alice said. You're right, I know, but I don't have to look today, do I? I don't think so, Spring said. Good, Alice answered. It was late in the evening when Keith finally came back. Alice was sitting on the couch reading a paper on transcendental properties of Hadamard matrices. Spring had gone to bed. Alice probably should have done too, but she was too excited to sleep. Keith entered holding a pair of suitcases and smiled at his fiancée. Alice stood up. Right this way, he said to someone Alice couldn't see. The guest room is just over to the left here. I'll put your bags in there. 
A young woman came in with a little red-headed girl of about six who was sleeping on her shoulder. Hi, she greeted with the exhausted tone of a mother who had just taken a long flight. Although Alice had never seen either of them looking this young, she would have recognized them anywhere. They were her mother and grandmother. Have we met? Alice asked. No, the woman admitted. I have had all this explained to me, though. It's a little surprising, but I have to admit this place is beautiful. Thanks, Alice said. It was very strange for me, too, the first time. Keith was saying that you have a dinosaur, the woman said. That's true, it's a triceratops. He's asleep in the backyard. Hazel will be excited. Alice smiled. She ran over to the woman and gave her a hug. I'm sorry, I know this is all backwards. I know you're supposed to be older, and I'm supposed to be young. I just wanted you to know how happy I am that you're here. Alice's mother turned her head just slightly, and rubbing her cheek on grandmother's shoulder made the pleasant sound of a child who is not entirely awake. I'd better get this one to bed, the woman said. Alice ran her fingers over the top of her six-year-old mother's hair. She's beautiful. The all-too-young grandmother smiled. It's nice to know that someday she'll hold you like this. I remember, Alice said. I miss it. I do too, Alice's grandmother said. There's nothing quite as wonderful as being held by your mother. What do you usually call me? Gran, Alice admitted. Helen will do for now, Gran said. I need to put her down. Alice didn't want to stop talking. You look like my sister, she blurted out. The woman smiled. I was thinking the same thing, Gran said. Good night. Alice turned around and made her way into the kitchen. It seemed like a good time for a cup of tea. Keith put a hand on her shoulder. That's your mother, he observed. And my gran, Alice admitted. This is a hell of a family reunion, Keith said. Where are we going on our honeymoon? Alice asked. I was thinking about the far side of the moon, Keith answered. I want to know where we're going. Do you know that in the far future there's a Dyson sphere in the planet Saturn? I haven't been there, of course, but it sounds exciting. Alice stamped her foot. I want to know where I'm going on my honeymoon. Keith kissed her. India, he said simply. Alice was surprised. India, she repeated. Keith looked smug. Well, you're a Brit. I figured since you were conquering America tomorrow, you'd naturally want to move on to India afterwards. Alice kissed him back. What's in India, she asked. Well, we're here in the Himalayas anyway. I thought it would be nice to see them in their heyday. You know, before they end up underwater. I've packed a telescope and there's a lot of dark sky territory. If you want, we can see the tigers. I think for once I might pass on staring into the night sky. Well, I hope you won't pass on the tigers then. We'll see, Alice said. 
A wedding is a beautiful moment that defies description. No photographs or home video can ever really do justice to the moment and what it means to the people involved. Keith, for his part, probably would have been happiest if there had been no one there, just Alice and him and a few witnesses. There is a certain level of poetry involved in a moment like that which would appeal to a man who had listed adventurer as his primary occupation even before he had met his wife. The time-traveling community would have been happier if all of Santiampo were there. Alice, after all, was their national hero. They settled on a crowd of about a hundred. Some had traveled from the far ends of time to be there, and some had barely had to get in their car. Some understood this, and some did not. Everyone could see that the bride and groom were happy, and that was enough. As the crowd took their seats, Alice found herself staring at a woman who looked about 25 and who was sitting on the left side of the aisle. She had curly blonde hair and a delicate nose that looked just a little bit like it belonged on a baby owl. The young blonde woman was wearing a navy blue dress with a pink cashmere sweater that looked like someone had bought it during the 1950s. Alice had never seen her before, but recognized her right away. I guess that makes sense, Alice thought. After all, if Mum can come as a little girl... Alice made eye contact with the woman and gave an awkward wave. The woman waved back and sat down. The music began to play. This was it. The big moment. There was no turning back. Alice! Alice's sister Wendy whispered to her as they waited to walk down the aisle. The little girl over there, that's mum. Alice looked at the pretty little redhead who was sitting next to their grandmother in the second row. In the flesh. What does she think we are? Wendy asked. Some distant relatives, I expect, Alice said. Someone who invited her to a wedding and then disappeared from her life after that for one reason or another. You know how things are when you're a child. Wendy shook her head. I just can't believe it. She's so young. It was the only way we could get her here without father knowing, Alice said. I know, Wendy whispered. Behind you. Alice spun around. A middle-aged man with graying hair and a long beard was standing right behind her, a small smile spreading on his face and a sad look in his eyes. Aye, lassie, the man said. Are you ready? Hi, Dad, Alice said. Alice was doing everything that she could to try and keep this moment tension-free, but the presence of her father made it hard. She sat him at a table at the reception where he would have an excellent view, but where she probably would not have to talk to him very much. Alice grabbed him by the arm and patted him to give the appearance of affection. I'm... Just so proud, her father said. After the last time I saw you, I thought... I know, Alice said. I'm sorry. I mean, I really wouldn't blame you, her father started, but she cut him off. Dad, Alice said, it's time. Spring, Alice's closest friend, served as maid of honor. 
She wore a deep purple dress and a lovely black bouffant wig which made her look a little like a member of a girl group from the 1960s. The sister of the bride wore a red evening gown and held a glass of Chardonnay throughout the ceremony. A silver birch tree on top of the hill served as the altar. Alice's father awkwardly brushed away a tear. Alice smiled at him for what was probably the first time in two decades. Alice's wedding to Keith Quick was a beautiful wedding. Weddings almost always are because they reflect happiness, which is the easiest of all emotions to find beauty in. Alice was happy. Two years, Alice thought to herself as she walked up to Keith. We've got two years, and after that, Alice Anderson Quick took his hand in hers. Two years. After that, well, I don't have to worry about that yet. I have two years, and that is something. Maybe in two years' time I will figure out what I need to do. I have to hope. The first time Spring told this story, she left nothing out, including the appearance of what was obviously Helen at her own mother's wedding. That was me, Helen asked, blushing. That was you, Spring agreed. Or any rate, it will be some day. I warned you, if you tell the story of King Arthur, you're going to be a part of it sooner or later. Which left Helen blushing in a manner that can only be accomplished by people who need to wear SPF 300 suntan lotion on a cloudy day. If she hadn't, she might have been more aware of the significance of what Spring was saying. Sooner or later, she was going to be part of the story. Sooner or later. And now, and now, random acts and of random poetry. Who mourns for the whales when they die? Does someone say a prayer? Does anyone grieve? Do you? Or I? Does anyone think that that's unfair? Would Ishmael cry at the whale's death? Would he stay silent, hold his breath? Isn't life beautiful? Aren't we kind? Isn't earth worth fighting for? When something happens, don't we mind? Doesn't our kindness overflow on the floor? For years I thought those things were true. But who mourns for the whales? Do you? Let us light a candle and pray. Pray for the animals who die. Pray for the beast who has no say. Who never ask or question why. If we grieve for the beasts of the earth, perhaps we'll learn what their lives are worth. This has been a random act of poetry. This has been a random act of your welcome. Hi, my name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. I wrote it all. I I did all the reading. I sang, I, I believe I played, I think, seven instruments on this particular one. So I'm kind of proud of that. 
Anyway, if you didn't like it, you can blame it all on me. And if you did like it, that's great. If you would like to subscribe and leave a review, the theory is, is that might help other people find it, and that would be nice. But the truth of the matter is, there's only one listener that matters, and that's you. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. The Infinitely Spiraling Clock is a sequel of sorts to my book, The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum. If you liked this podcast so far, you might want to pick up a copy if you haven't already. It's available from my publisher, Mirror World. And it's available from my wife's website, felixetti.com. It is also available from Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Um, I don't really think I make any money if you buy it off of either one of those places, uh, especially Amazon. I know Amazon, I, I make like a nickel, so um, yeah, find it somewhere else. I, I yeah, There's a couple of libraries that have it, so if you want to do that, that's fine. Next week, uh, in episode 13, Keith and Alice's relationship is going to get a little more complicated. And that's it for right now. Thanks. Have a good night.